Welcome to episode 13 of the Muck Podcast, where we discuss the dark and sometimes weird true stories in American politics. I'm Tina Jaramillo. And I'm Hillary Doherty. So, Hillary, <laughs> we have been quarantined-ish. Yeah. <laughs> Quarantine 2020. Yes. I think we have to do that because it'll probably happen more, right? Don't you think? I'm very confused by coronavirus. I'm I'm quarantining myself. I'm able to take my kids to my office. I'm the only one who works there, so it's safe. Oh. Except I don't know. I, I'm a kind of person who I like a plan. I like a good plan, but there's no end to the plan, right? And yeah. so that's what makes me nervous. It's like, oh, well, the kids are going to be out of school until further notice. I'm like, no, no, no. I need to have a date. Like, but yes. we don't know because everything's very up in the air, and so. It's a little nerve-wracking. It is. I'm feeling a little anxious, and um, my place of employment actually is sort of an until further notice. We're a month before we return to my place of employment, and my kids are home for a couple of those weeks because mm. their school is closed for two weeks. But it's just the learning. I don't know. You know, I'm like, well, we're going to still try to do activities. And they, their mindset is. Oh, honey. No, yeah, that's they, not they're, happening. They're like, it's vacation. I keep no. seeing posts about like, here's some websites, some learning websites that are giving free access. I'm like, who's able to get their kids on that? Although the kids are going to be getting schoolwork. So, and, and, and uh, one of their teachers was like, they need to be doing this every day, not two days before we go back to school. Yeah. Like it's going to be, it's going to mm -hmm. be, we're not going to fall behind. And, and listen, I appreciate this. Yeah. And I think that one of my children will be very good at making sure that that happens. The other one, not so much. Yeah. My children's school next week, they only had, I want to say it was like a day and a half mm. worth mm -hmm. of classes anyway, because there were some off days and teacher planning days. And then the week after that was their spring break. Right. So they're not missing too much curriculum, but I'm still going to make them do stuff every day because I still, I know I'm nervous. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen to the state testing in the public schools. Right. Because um, across when, the state, if different schools are closing at different times, those state tests are a set date. Okay. I don't know if that'll get pushed out. I don't know what they're going to do with that. I don't know what's going to happen on the high school level with the national AP exams. Yeah, everything's, everything's Every, being shifted. Yeah, it's. I have no idea how any of it's going to work. It's... This sort of unknown I know. kind of play it by ear I know. space. So, girl. But I'm happy for a distraction. So, yeah, to be here. Yes. Yeah. And can't wait good. to hear your story. We're on episode 13, lucky number 13. <laughs> okay. So, are you ready? I am. Okay. So, I'm going to talk about San Francisco Board Supervisor Dan White. Oh. Okay. So, this was kind of interesting. Um, I've never been to San Francisco. I'm so dying to go. Yeah, it's just First of beautiful. all, like rice-a-roni, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the trolleys. Trolleys, yes. Lombard Street, the bridge. Mm. I wanted to see it all. And you know I'm going to just say, Grateful Dead. Yes, <laughs> yes girl, <laughs> yes. So I love the whole idea of San Francisco, even though I've never seen it or stepped foot in there. I just feel like I would be right at home in San Francisco. So, all right. So this is kind of interesting. The early days of San Francisco, American settlers who moved west toward California in the 18th and 19th centuries were largely male prospectors and miners. Events such as California's gold rush um, created a broadly male society in that region. Mm. Romantic friendships were common and often tolerated. Did you oh, know this? Isn't I like that. Very, we, like I had no idea. Yes. As San Francisco was settled, the ratio of men to women remained disproportionately high, resulting in the growth of a culture that was open, more open-minded towards homosexuality. I love that this Isn't is that? like the, the historical root of that. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. So then, of course, during World War II, San Francisco became a major debarkation, debarkation, Barkation point for the servicemen stationed in the Pacific. And then uh, the U.S. military, which was concerned about male homosexuality, had a policy of dismissing servicemen caught in known gay establishments. Mm. As many of these men faced being rejected from their communities and families, they chose to remain in the city. The number of men that remained was a significant factor in the creation of a homosexual community in San Francisco, So, which is kind of very well known at this point. Yeah. But that's how it started. So after the war... The convergence of returning servicemen, significant immigration, liberalizing attitudes, along with the rise of the hippie counterculture, the sexual revolution, and the peace movement 
growing from opposition to the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War and other factors led to the Summer of Love and the gay rights movement cementing San Francisco as a center of liberal activism in the United God, States. I love that. I wish maybe in another life I was there. I mean, it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like heaven to me. I know. It, it really does. Wonderful. And I do feel like because we live in South Florida and this is a bit of a bubble when it comes to Florida because Florida is a red state. But down here, I grew up in Walton Manors, which is a very gay community. I remember when, when all of the gays started to move in and we, yeah. you know, it just became a very a gay friendly city and is, is a big deal in Florida if you're in Walton Manors, if you're gay, because it's a very accepting, you can yes. walk down the street and holding you know hands. And Wilton Manors turned around. Yes. Because there was a time where yes. where people were leaving Wilton Manors and Yes. My mother was excited. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> and so was I because I love it's all I'm all I'm all about it. So um so let's talk about Dan White. So Daniel James White was born on September second, nineteen forty six in San Francisco. He was the second of nine children, huge Catholic family. Mm. Um in high school he excelled in sports and went on to serve in Vietnam in the Vietnam War as a paratrooper. He returned home as uh, to work first as a policeman and then as a fireman. So here's his picture. Oh. Handsome. Yeah, it's very 70s. Yeah. I mean, look at that tie. Yeah, very wide. And those lapels. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so while on duty as a fireman, um, White's rescue of a woman. Oh, first of all, I want to say that he worked as a, a policeman first, and he left the, the police department after he witnessed a police officer beating um, a civilian oh. and, like, reported it. And that was a no-go. Like, you don't do that. <laughs> right? So he Look left. for him. Yeah. And then he went on to be a fireman. So while he was on duty as a fireman, White's rescue of a woman and her baby from a seventh-floor apartment in the Geneva Towers was covered by the San Francisco Chronicle. The city's newspapers referred to him as an all-American boy. Because of this, his image and this new notoriety, he was encouraged to run for the Board of Supervisors for District mm. 8. And in 1977, White was elected as a Democrat to the San Francisco's uh, San Francisco Board of Supervisors from District 8, which included several neighborhoods near the southeastern limits uh, of San Francisco. So at this time, supervisors were elected by district and not at large because it was the same thing we talked about, with, like Escambia County, where neighborhoods were being left behind or forgotten. Yeah. And so they broke it up. And a board of supervisors is like a county commission. Right. There's a president, there's a mayor, and then there's all these commissioners who represent the districts. Um, so he had strong support from the police and the firefighters unions. Um, his district was described by the New York Times as, quote, a largely white middle class section that is hostile to the growing homosexual community of San Francisco. Mm. Yeah. So as a supervisor, White openly saw himself as the board's, quote, defender of the home, the family and religious life against homosexuals, pot smokers and cynics. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So he had this at first I was like, oh, it reminds me of. You know, like the cartoons, like, you know, there's the cat stuck in the tree or, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and the woman and the baby and, and the yeah. fireman running up the ladder and the, the big yeah. time hero. But now, well, you know, everybody's got their their place. Yes. <laughs> so while on the board, White became part of a loosely formed coalition to oppose Mayor George Moscone and his liberal ideas, um, having frequent disagreements on policy with fellow supervisor Harvey Milk. Mm. Okay, so you know where we're going. Yeah. Um, I just got goosebumps. Um, I also want to talk about like this time in history, um, in the, in like mid seventies, late seventies is when the gay rights movement was like starting to pick up, Yes, you know, we had Stonewall and, and all of those things, but like in San Francisco, the focus on, um, homosexual or gays being in, in politics was a big deal and they were getting pushback. Certain laws were being passed by really Christian coalitions all over the country, especially in like Miami-Dade County, there was a huge one. Right. And then once that passed, people started to states and cities started to pass these really awful yeah. laws about about gays so, so much for separation of church and state yeah no that's yeah. when it really why don't started. you why don't you start paying taxes since you won't have your you know <laughs> you're always in the business of politics why don't yeah. you start paying up well and and as much as like when a movement starts like the gay rights movement there's always going to be that counter to it that's going to rise at the same time and so both of those things started at the same time um, okay, so let's talk about George Moscone. George Moscone was born and raised in San Francisco. He was a lawyer, and before becoming mayor of San Francisco in 1975, he was a California state senator. So let me show you his picture. All these pictures will be on our um, Instagram. Oh. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a nice picture. I like the books in the background. Yeah. <laughs> I'm smart. Yes. I read. Very scholarly. <laughs> yeah. So as a senator, he was an outspoken supporter of gay rights. He, along with Assemblyman Willie Brown, sponsored a bill to repeal California's sodomy law, which is the law that they used to arrest a lot of gay men. Oh, my God. So they wanted to get rid of that. Um, he also sponsored a bill to legalize abortion in the state of California that was signed by the govern- by then governor, Ronald Reagan. Ooh. Honey. Honey, go do your homework. You get them receipts. Wow. Get the receipts. (laughs) So, um, okay. When Moscone won the mayoral election in 1975, his opponent, John Barbagaletta, accused Moscone of election fraud. Now, I'm only bringing this up because I know that you will love this. And we are on the same page Uh and you will love this this whole little bit, even though it kind of goes off track, but a little sidebar, but it's good. I can't wait. I can't wait. So Moscone ran a grassroots mayoral campaign, which drew volunteers from organizations like Glide Methodist Memorial Church, Delancey Street, which is like a rehab center, and the People's Temple, which was initially known as a church preaching racial equality and social justice, oh, but turned into a fanatical yes. cult. I was going to say People's Temple. Is that the yes. Jim Jones? Honey. Oh. I know. Look, I can't. This whole story is so fucked. So for the rest of his life, Barbara Galetta maintained that the People's Temple had committed massive election fraud on behalf of Moscone mm. by busing people in from out of town to vote multiple times under the names of deceased San Francisco oh residents. Which, by the way, later on, I, after I'm the Jim Jones thing, yeah, after the this. Jim Jones thing, there was people who were in People's Temple that confirmed that this this actually did happen. They were, yeah. The People's Temple also worked to get out the vote in precincts where Moscone received a twelve to one vote margin over Barbara Galetta. After People's Temple's work and votes by people by Temple members were instrumental in delivering a close victory for Moscone, Moscone appointed Temple leader Jim Jones as chairman of the San Francisco's Housing Committee oh, dear God. or Commission. I completely forgot about that. So if you aren't aware of Jim Jones and the People's Temple, uh, Jones eventually moved his people to Guyana and founded Jonestown, which they called a, quote, agricultural project. But like most cults, they were paranoid motherfuckers. And on November 18th, 1978, 918 people died Mm. at Jonestown after drinking poison Kool-Aid because they thought the government was coming to get them. It was a... It's... It's 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 so hard. It's horrific. Children. If you yeah, I if mean, you watch like, those the documentary and oof, yeah, they they scary. put stuff in the baby bottles. Yeah, and so when people say they're drinking the Kool Aid, like that's based off of this. Yes. Okay, so Don't drink the Kool Aid. <laughs> yeah, no. Talking to you, MAGA folks. <laughs> Talking to you. So as mayor, Moscone was the first mayor. Um, as mayor, though, Moscone was the first mayor to appoint large numbers of minority groups, including gays and lesbians, to influential positions within San Francisco. Okay, so Harvey Milk. Now, listen, I'm going to touch very, very loose, like a little bit in Harvey Milk. I could do an entire episode. Yes. I'm obsessed with Harvey Milk. I'm doing research for this. I've watched so many speeches by Harvey Uh. Milk and like have been moved beyond I can ever imagine. But I can't get into all of it. Maybe down the road, 20 or 30 episodes from now, I'll just do Harvey Milk just to talk about how fantastic he is, but I can't go into the whole thing. Um, So Harvey Milk was born in New York and served in the U.S. Navy during the Korean War. When he returned home, uh, he graduated college and he worked as an investment banker um, on Wall Street and a statistician for an insurance company. Um, His relentless pursuit for attention led Milk to be dismissed as a publicity whore by many, but he knew the root cause of the gay predicament was invisibility. So the thing about Harvey Milk was this. He was in the closet for a long, long time. He hid it from his family. He thought it was like going to kill his mother if she knew. He Hmm. had relationships and stuff, but he was really in the closet for a long time. And it wasn't until he went to San Francisco and saw how um, gays in the community they were being treated and how his business, being a gay business owner, how he was being treated... That he was like, yeah, he was like, I have to come out and everybody I know has to come out or we're all going to, it's not like we have to be visible, you know? And it like, I really feel like to the fact that he came out when he did, it kind of, all of that passion and energy and like force of who he was like came to the surface and he really got into who he really was. Yeah. And he galvanized people. Oh, he was, he was an an amazing uh, leader. Okay. So in 1972, Milk moved to the Castro, the heart of San Francisco's gay community, where he ran for office twice before being elected to the Board of Supervisors in 1977. So here's a picture of Harvey Milk. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Um, Milk was the first openly gay man elect to be elected official position in any significance in America. So this was, like again, historic news all across the country when he... Um, 
he walked arm in arm with his partner, his boyfriend, when he went to City Hall to be sworn in oh and through the streets God, where people this. were just coming out of their businesses and their homes to walk with him. Where by the time he got there, he had like 200, 300 people oh following him. God. And they were smiling and laughing. And, and, and it was just covered by national news that he was what a beautiful, elected. Yeah. beautiful thing. It was a big deal. Um, just a little side note, the first person, though, that was elected, uh, LGBTQ person elected to po- political office in the U.S. was Kathy Kazachenko, who won an Ann Arbor, Michigan council seat in 1974. Hey. Yeah, so he was the first man. Okay. So the 1977 Board of Supervisors. Despite their personal differences, Dan White and Supervisor Harvey Milk initially had several areas of political agreement, and they reportedly worked well together. Milk was one of the th- one of three supervisors invited to the baptism of White's newborn child shortly after the election. Wow. And White had also <clears throat> persuaded then-Supervisor President Dianne Feinstein that Diane Feinstein, to appoint Milk chairman of the Streets and Transportation Committee. The Catholic Church uh, proposed a facility for juvenile offenders who had committed murder, arson, rape, and other crime in Dan White's district in April of 1978. Um, White was strongly opposed to this. He did not want it in his district. Milk supported the facility, and this difference led to what would become the major conflict between these two. Um, But White held a mixed record on gay rights issues. He opposed the Briggs Initiative, which I'll tell you about in a second, and he voted against an ordinance prohibiting anti-gay housing and employment discrimination. So, you know, he he was all over the place, you know, but he still felt like, I mean, he was a very frustrated man. So the Briggs Initiative was a piece of legislation in the California Assembly that would prohibit gays and lesbians from teaching in schools. And he was for or against this? He was against it. He He opposed it. But he was for the housing. Right. Okay. Um, and then uh, John Briggs, the legislator who proposed it, was trying to capitalize on the anti-gay wave from Christians because in private he was telling people he has nothing against gays. It was like they were watching these things happen all over the country and there were certain politicians who weren't anti-gay but were just like, oh, I could get all these Christians behind right. me so I'm just going to propose this piece of shit bill. Uh, or support. Yeah. And it was bills. called Prop 6 on the on the, uh. on the vote. It did, end, it did end up failing, but, but Harvey Milk would go out all over – the state and and scream about this bill and tell it was telling gays you have to come out of the closet yeah because they're going to make sure we cannot get jobs so we can't you know what oh i mean God. he's like you have to it's come crazy. out crazy i know um so while on the board milk sponsored a civil rights bill that outlawed outlawed discrimination based on sexual orientation which ended up being a huge deal uh for the country other cities started to, to follow that and dan white was the only supervisor to vote against it because once so now he's milk, being petty. Yeah. And once Milk was okay with that that facility being put in his district, White was like, I'm not helping you with anything. Um, and then uh, they clashed over everything. And White clashed with a lot of the members of the board because there weren't a lot that were conservative like him. They were mostly liberal, you know? Um, also, uh, okay, wait, let's get into this. So then um, on November 10th, 1978, White resigned his seat as supervisor. The reasons he cited were his dissatisfaction with what he saw as the corrupt inner workings of San Francisco's city politics, as well as the difficulty in making a living without a police officer's or firefighter's salary, jobs he could not hold legally while serving as a supervisor. Okay. Impossible to support his family on the meager supervisor salary of $9,600 a year, White had opened a baked potato stand at one of the piers, what? which failed. That's so random. A I know. baked potato stand? I mean, he was trying to do anything just to make Who's money. Who's going to order a baked potato by the pier? I don't know. <laughs> Look, what about fish and chips? That sounds good. Something yeah, else, yeah, yeah. but it's so odd. I know. Um, <laughs> but even at one point, he Harvey came to him and was like, hey, you know, let's try to work things out. And he was like, oh, you must need something from me. And Harvey Milk was like, yeah, I want you to vote for the civil rights ordinance that I'm trying, you know, to pass. And he was like, He's okay. Let's let's work it out. You, I'll vote for that if you propose that we get a raise in our salaries. And he's like, dude, we are going out for re-election. Harvey Milk's like, I can't do that. We'll never get re-elected. And he was like, mm, I guess we're out of luck. You know, like he was in a really bad mm. position. He 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 couldn't support his family. Okay. Yeah. So um, White actually reversed his resignation on November fourteenth, nineteen seventy eight, after his supporters lobbied him to seek appointment from George Moscone. Which I think, again, is people using him in a way like, you know, pushing yeah. him in a direction. He obviously wanted to leave. He needed to go support his family. Yeah. And now here come all these Christians or whatever people who are against the gay community coming in. Oh, no, no, no. You need to stay. You need to stay. Like, he was trying to get out of this. I don't know. And they, they kind of... They, they pushed him back into yes. it. 
Every time I try to get out, they pull me back <laughs> yeah, in. they pull me back <laughs> in. So White approached Moscone and asked to be reappointed to the board. And although Moscone considered White's plea, he had already been strongly influenced by Milk and other board members to appoint another liberal federal housing official, mm. Don Haranzi, instead. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I feel like this is yeah, we're going down a bad building. road. Yeah. yeah. So, um, okay, here we go. On November 27, 1978, White visited San Francisco City Hall to meet with the mayor and to make a final plea to get his job back. He arrived that day by climbing through a first-floor window on the side of City Hall, carrying a loaded gun and 10 rounds of ammunition. Oh, no. So by entering the building through that window, White was able to circumvent the recently installed metal detectors. Now, those metal detectors were put in because Harvey Milk's life was being threatened so much from everywhere he was right. getting letters from everywhere saying he was gonna they were gonna kill him and so they put those in there so that he yeah. could stay safe and here's this guy now climbing through like this basement oh window gosh. or something to get in which a lot of people apparently knew that window was always always open uh, it was like well known in city hall right and so that's what they probably went. never thought like one of us is, is right like somebody it. who knows yeah. it's open um so after entering moscone's office white pleaded to be reinstated as supervisor but moscone said no uh-oh. White then killed Moscone <gasps> by shooting him in the shoulder, chest, and twice in the head. Oh, my God. He reloaded his weapon and walked to the other side of City Hall to Milk's office, <gasps> fatally shooting him five oh. times. The fatal two shots fired with the gun barrels touching Milk's skull. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, there's... That's that so incredibly And deliberate. the coroner later said that if, if those two men hadn't been shot in the head, they probably would have survived their injuries. Mm. But it was, he also put it right up to the Moscone skull as well. Yeah. So it was very deliberate, yes, like trying yes. to kill these two people. And a lot of times they say, like, with guns, there's that distance. No, yeah. You know? No, this like, guy. You know, other than like a knife, like with a knife or something, you're up close. Yes. And, and, and the act. Personal. And this, yeah, this feels very much like that. Yeah. Oh. White then fled City Hall, turning himself in at the San Francisco's Northern Police Station, where he had been a police officer. While being interviewed by investigators, White recorded a tearful confession stating, I just shot him. Like there was. But it was premeditated. Totally. Yeah. I mean, come on. You went through the window, bro. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. What is that? So, okay, the trial, which was a shit show. Oh, God. At the trial, White's defense team argued that his mental state at the time of the killings was one of diminished capacity due to depression. They argued that he was not capable of premeditating the killings and thus was not legally guilty of first-degree murder. But I feel Mm -hmm. that if you are climbing in through a window, that you are avoiding detection, that that you are of sound mind, that you are capable of making decisions. And reloading the gun, I kind of And reloading the gun, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's... uh, I know. I agree. So forensic psychiatrist Martin Blinder testified that White was suffering from depression and pointed to several behavioral symptoms of that depression, including the fact that White had gone from being highly health conscious to consuming sugary foods and drinks. Um, And this is what is now known as the Twinkie defense. I don't know if you've ever heard that. I, this is the, the, I, I, yeah. This is stupid. It's stupid. <laughs> the and he never, they defense. never actually talked about him eating Twinkies, but it was just this like sugary food. Like he was high on sugar, basically, and like oh out of my his God. mind. Yeah, that's what it was called. Okay. So when the and then when the prosecution played a recording of White's confession, several jurors wept as they listened to what was decided or described as a quote a man pushed beyond his endurance. Yes, but that's not an excuse to kill people, right? Oh, please. I don't know how this ends. Oh. Girl. Oh, God. I know. Oh, my God. The jury found White guilty of voluntary manslaughter rather than first-degree murder. Outrage within San Francisco's gay community over the resulting seven-year sentence <gasps> sparked the city's, quote, White Night riots. General disdain for the outcome of the court case, though, led to the... Seven years. I know. Um, general disdain for the outcome of the court case led to the elimination of California's, quote, d- diminished capacity law. Because that's basically what they were using. Like, I was out of my mind and I wasn't able to. Oh, my God. And I I wonder if... I'm sure that the sexuality played a role in it. I have to tell you, I don't know what this jury was made of. I don't know who was sitting there. You know, they picked certain jurors based on asking them questions and how they feel about certain things. And I would imagine hearing this guy, he's a, he's a very good looking white man. He's got kids. He's married. Like, Oh, he saved a woman and a baby from a burning building. He's an all American hero. And you know, I think that that 
you know, he's crying, you know, God forbid a man shows his emotions and all of a sudden we're like, oh, he identified a feeling like, you know, so we start feeling bad for them. So I'm, I'm sure it did, but. Did he get out in seven years? So yeah, let's, or less. So let's get into what happens oh, after. God. So a few people I just want to highlight. So Diane Feinstein. So the president of the board of supervisors at the time, Diane Feinstein, would go on to serve the rest of George Moscone's term as mayor, and then was elected as the first female mayor of San Francisco after she ran for the seat, which was great. Yeah. Um, in 1992, she was elected as a United States senator from California, a position she still holds today. She's a very interesting woman. And I think I'll probably highlight her on a future episode of The Muck because there's a lot to talk about with Diane Feinstein. <laughs> okay, um, Dan White. So Dan White served five years of his seven-year oh sentence God. at Soledad State Prison and was paroled on January 6, 1984. Fearing White might be murdered in retaliation for his crimes, California state corrections officials secretly transported him to Los Angeles where he served his year's parole. Um at the expiration of that year, White sought to return to San Francisco, and then Mayor Diane... Are you serious? Yeah. What balls? I mean, well... <laughs> Mayor uh, Diane Feinstein issued a public announcement of his plans and a statement formally asking White not to return. Um, White did move back to San Francisco anyway wow. and attempted to rebuild his life with his wife and children, but it, it didn't uh, work out. Um and then on October 21st, 1985, less than two years after his release from prison, White committed suicide oh. by carbon monoxide poisoning in his garage by running a garden hose from the exhaust pipe to the inside of his car. Oh, my God. White's body was discovered by his brother shortly before 2 p.m. on the same day. Um, he was buried at a national cemetery. He's got a government-issued headstone because he's a veteran. Um, and then he was survived by his two sons, who were seven and four years old at the time. Oh, and then an infant daughter that was... Uh, happened but he was in jail one of those conjugal visits they had a daughter oh dear yeah oh my god and he was young he was in his 40s still when this happened I mean it's a terrible end for him but I mean why go back to San Francisco why not just just excise yourself from the whole situation if you're going to rebuild I mean he should be in jail for life yeah he shouldn't have got out right and his wife shouldn't have a conjugal visit with him. He's a murderer. <laughs> That's true also. I mean, what are you doing? I don't know. What message are you sending your children? I don't I, listen, I, it's, Decisions people make, I, I don't, I, you know, maybe I had too many Twinkies, but I don't understand. I'm confused. I mean, I'm confused. I had too many. Can you imagine? No. Twinkie company must have been like, wait, yeah, what? No. No. <laughs> Keep eating the Twinkies. What are you people doing? <laughs> Girl, you're not going to get me to stop eating Twinkies. Okay. Um, George Moscone. So the Moscone Center, San Francisco's largest convention center and exhibition hall, was and Moscone, a recreation center, are named in his honor. Moscone and Milk also have schools named after them. The Moscone, um, George Moscone Elementary, Harvey Milk Elementary, and Harvey Milk High School. Harvey, uh, Moscone's main political legacy is his opening of San Francisco City Hall to be more a more diverse and inclusive place with political appointments that represented the full spectrum of the population, including minorities and the growing gay community. That's so lovely. It is. Also, when, when Harvey Milk was elected in that commission, there was so many, there was a single mother who was elected as well and an Asian American man that was elected. A black woman was elected. It was a very, it was like the year of like all yeah, these amazing people being elected it. to that board. Yeah. Um, Despite a backlash from the political old guard and conservatives, and despite the double assassination of Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk, both were leading progressives, the city has never retreated from Moscone's more inclusive view of politics, which is Mm. great. Okay, so let's talk about Harvey Milk, and I'm going to try to do this without crying. Mm. I know, I think I've watched too many Harvey Milk videos in the last few days. Yeah. Okay, so... Karen Foss, a communications professor at the University of New Mexico, attributes Milk's impact on San Francisco politics to the fact that he was unlike anyone else who had held public office in the city. She writes, quote, Milk happened to be a highly energetic, charismatic figure with a love of theatrics and nothing to lose. Using laughter, reversal, transcendence, and his insider-outsider status, Milk helped create a climate in which dialogue on issues became possible. He also provided a means to integrate the disparate disparate voices of the various constituencies end quote on the 20th anniversary of mark of milk's death historian john d'amelio said quote the legacy that i think he would want to be remembered for is the imperative to live one's life at all times with integrity end quote Mm. so true right yes um in 2018 this is where i'm gonna get a little emotional (laughs) 
In 2018, we saw what was called, quote, the rainbow wave in the Mm. midterm elections when over 150 LGBTQ candidates were elected across the country, including Jared Polis, the first gay governor in in Colorado, Sharice Davids, a U.S. House rep from Kansas, and Danica Rome, a transgender woman running in the Virginia House. (laughs) I know. Now I'm getting getting teary watching you get teary. (laughs) (laughs) And bisexual Kristen Cinnamon, who won a U.S. Senate seat in Arizona from from a fucking Republican, by the way. Yes. Um, in 2018, there were a total of 559 openly LGBTQ elected officials across the country. Wow. And in 2019, we have 698. Yes. That's incredible. I love it. It's incredible. Yes. Right? Um, for a political career so short, Clev Jones attributes more to his assassination than his life, which I think is probably true. Right. Yeah. You lost this person so young. And so and in the middle of the height of all of this. Yeah. It's a shame. It is. And you Um, think of what what else could have been. Yeah. You know? I know. So Clev Jones says, quote, his murder and the response to it made permanent and unquestionable unquestionable the full participation of gay and lesbian people in the political process, end quote. True. Mm. So my final quote, uh, when uh, when Milk kept receiving death threats, he said, quote, I'm going to start crying. No, don't (laughs) cry. You could do it. You could do it. (laughs) He said... If a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet shatter every closet door. Oh. Oh, my God. It's so fucking sad. It's terrible. And I think, you know, when I say there's 698 elected people, like, wouldn't he be in awe of how fucking fantastic that is? It's unbelievable. And how much he knew that, you know, it's very hard to come out of the closet it's hard to be really true to who you are you risk losing your family and your Even friends today and in politics. your job your housing like yeah. it's just such a difficult thing to do and the fact that he just knew that he had to be visible to save lives and to save his community and he did that and risked everything and was like let's be honest this he's, was a hate crime like he was killed because of that and you he's know? the brave one you know they talk yes. about the, the and not I'm not discounting firefighters and what they do. They're incredibly brave. But, yeah. you know, they highlighted his killer as this brave, loyal American. And, and Milk was right. brave every single day. Yeah. Too. Yeah. You know? One of the things... And that's not... not you know... Recogn- it's recognized now, but at the time. Right. Recognizing, like, how incredibly important that he was. Had got, he, he was about to go out and speak... Um, against that prop six and he received a a note right before he walked on stage and it said if you get in front of that mic you're gonna get shot and he was like i'm going up there yes i mean it's unbelievable he was really willing to risk the ultimate thing which was his life to fight for these rights you know what i mean and it kind of makes me think about people and like what do you stand for what are you about you know what are you fighting for we're losing our rights still this is not a thing that's ending and we have to stand up every single day and risk everything every single day because these things are like, even as hard as he worked, people are still fighting. Yes. You know, it reminds me, I, I know I'm always quoting Shakespeare or something, <laughs> but it does remind me of, um, in, in Julius Caesar, the quote that, and, and I'm going to just paraphrase it, but the idea that the coward, the coward dies many, many times, but the, those who are brave die only once mm. because people who are afraid all the hesitation like they don't they they don't want to come forward so they're they don't take that chance and the people who are brave they they die that one time but it's for oh yeah you know what i mean yeah yeah other than like sort of oh my god if i do this or what could happen and having that fear kind of paralyze right so that's what (sighs) it reminded me of that he's like let's go yeah let's do it yes Mm. all right girl oh you're up (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god i hope it's not dark no okay good <laughs> actually i have a really because uh, i feel like i typically do more <laughs> of the darker side um but today i'm um definitely looking at the mischief maker okay and good. um but it's someone who's a political activist <gasps> oh my god yeah it's so funny it is um i want to just highlight a couple of sources um you know and you, again, you guys can see this on our blog, but uh, there was a, a David Kuhn who wrote for the Arkansas Times wrote a couple of really great articles that I got a lot of my info from and um, also from the New York Times Associated Press. 
and the Chicago Tribune, among others. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited to tell the story because my I've heard this story in the past through my husband and my in-laws, and so I thought it would be great to share it with you. So I'm going to tell you the story of political activist, provocateur, and gadfly Robert Say McIntosh of Little Rock, Arkansas. All right. So... Throughout Little Rock, Say McIntosh was known for his vocal crit critique of local and state politicians, including then-governor mm. and presidential hopeful yeah. Bill Clinton. Come on. And he's also known for his famous sweet potato pies. <laughs> so, like that, I mean, he's, uh, I believe he has the title of, like, the sweet potato pie king of Little Rock. Like, everybody knows his pies. Sweet and, potato pie is disgusting. Well, no. maybe you haven't had a St. Macintosh pie. Yeah, all right, great. So, <laughs> but when Say lightens up on his usual attacks during Clinton's presidential campaign, rumors kind of swirl about what may have led to his change of pace. Like, oh. why did Say, you know, he still was kind of attacking, but, but it was a little bit less than his typical steps. <laughs> so... Our story takes place in Little Rock, and Little Rock is the state capital of Arkansas, and it's basically the cultural, economic, and legislative hub of the state. And my husband and his family lived in southwest Little Rock um, when some of these incidents that I'm going to oh, talk about cool. occurred. And in fact, Say actually lived on my husband's street for a little while. <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah. And um, when he was home from college from uh, University of Arkansas, he happened to have like two tickets to a Razorbacks football game. And he's like, I'm not going to this game. I have these tickets. I'm going to walk down. I'll see if Say wants the tickets. So he knocks on his door and he's like, hey, I got these tickets. And he's like, no, I don't want them. But hold on a sec. And he goes back and he comes out with a sweet potato pie. And he's like, you oh. can have this pie, though. Oh, and my so God. Did he take it? He did. He left with the two tickets <laughs> and the sweet potato pie and headed on home. Oh, he sounds like, sound like a nice neighbor. Yeah. All right. I mean, my, my father-in-law, they, they're all... They, he definitely was a character. Yeah. Um, and he does some kooky things. Okay. <laughs> so um, what what did say allegedly do? Like sort of what was the big thing that people kind of talked about? So allegedly, allegedly, again, I'm going to say it. All right. He made a deal to stop reproaching Clinton during the federal election campaign season in exchange for his son's pardon from jail. <gasps> Ooh. This oh. is alleged. So there is no you know, concrete evidence, but there are several articles that talked about it. Ooh. And Say himself said, you know, this is why I did what I did. So he actually oh. said that too. But again, like they... But Clintons aren't saying anything. No. Okay, right. No, so no, it's alleged no. in that way. It's alleged in that way. Okay. So now before I want to get into the details of that allegation, I want to give you a little bit of background on Say. Please, and, I'm dying to know. And you... You guys that are listening, you need to go to <laughs> some of the sources that I have, especially the David Kuhn articles, because they, they really outline like year by year what this guy has done throughout the community. And he's really an interesting guy. And I'm just going to highlight some of the political antics, but he did have more than the things that I'm going to touch okay. on for today's episode. Um, so as I said earlier, he was a rabble rouser. And there's a quote from Socrates that I feel like is really appropriate. He said, uh, and the quote is, I am that gadfly, which God has attached to the state and all day long and in all places am always fastening upon you, arousing and persuading and reproaching you. And that was say like, he was like always there to call out oh the God. governor and other people for like what they were doing. And he, he would post these flyers <laughs> all around oh, town. It's like pre-internet. But the flyers are, they're so great. And I'll, I will show you um, when we get into it a couple okay. of those uh, <laughs> pictures. So Say began his career as a restaurateur known for his sweet potato pies. And he parlayed that into his activism. So, for example, in 1980, when then Governor Clinton raised license plate fees, I believe he like almost doubled them. Mm. Um, he started selling sweet potato pies to raise money so he could protest and like go after Clinton <laughs> for doing this particular thing. Wow. Um, at that time, Say also happened to run for um, lieutenant governor, but he lost. He once attempted to chop down a tree planted on the Arkansas Capitol in honor of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. 
and this was in front of the press, and he said, no black man was invited to be present for the tree planting. I'm cutting it down till blacks are invited to be part of the political process in Little Rock. What? Yes. So he was, you know, as a black man, he was like, you know, we're not being recognized and you're planting this tree, but no one was invited. So down the tree goes. He Did he cut it down? He didn't. He got stopped. <laughs> but later on... The tree was chopped down, like in his honor, like in the middle of the night. People what? were like, "We did this for say." <laughs> no, like it's just, it's crazy. God. It's crazy. Somebody better chop down a tree for me, God damn it! Oh my god! So another time, he dressed uh, like an impoverished person to draw attention to the lack of empathy for public alcohol uh, alcoholism, like affecting the homeless. So he dressed like a bum, and he was like on the street, like just <laughs> acting out to like show people, like we need to care about this issue. Um, another time. He was upset about like an alcohol business being put near his restaurant. So he dumped like a bunch of empty alcohol bottles, like in the middle of the parking lot. Like he just did like wild antics um, throughout. Um, but it's, it's also this kind of the kind of antics that somebody comes up with in their house by themselves. Yes. You know, it's not like it's, this is a planned thing. No. It's like, I know what would be great and it only really makes sense to him and yes. nobody else. Everybody's like, okay, let's and go watch out this there guy. Doing just, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So according to David Kuhn's article in the Arkansas Times, McIntosh once endorsed Ralph P. Forbes, a neo-Nazi, white supremacist, and KKK supporter for lieutenant governor. What? I know. So um, there was like, the, and he did a lot of things on live television. So there's this live television <laughs> appearance. And he, he goes there and he actually punches Forbes in the face mm. on TV and he and say claims it wasn't because he was this KKK guy. It was because he wouldn't let me burn the flag. I wanted to burn the flag. He stopped me from burning the flag. So he punches him in the face. And um, later on, he gets brought to trial for, you know, assaulting Forbes. Right. And he's like, Forbes, listen, you know, this was a publicity sign. You guys oh. hired me to do this. Oh, my God. Uh, admit to it. Admit to it. And he says that it was to garner sympathy. Like if I, as a black man, hit uh, Forbes, then white racists will be like, oh, my God, we got to go out and vote right. for Forbes. Right. That's, that's what Say was saying in court. Like this was part of this deal. And a friend even noted that he would get paid, that Say would get paid to cause like hubbubaloo everywhere and draw attention to candidates that he supposedly opposed. Uh, but in the end, after that court um uh, experience he ends up losing of course he had to pay five hundred dollars and uh had a 30-day suspended uh sentence he's like uh, a real life internet troll yes like, come to life. yeah yeah walking the street this Just is random in, yes from like the 80s through the 90s wow during a fundraiser at then governor frank white's mansion where then vice president george bush would be in attendance mcintosh shows up in this like ridiculous outfit ready to disrupt the event and give a speech he had asked permission. He bought tickets to the fundraiser and he asked permission, like in writing, I'm going to come to the fundraiser, but I want to talk. And the people there are like, no, like, what are you going to say? <laughs> we know that you oppose Governor White. Like, why would we give you yeah. the podium? And so he shows up and he was refused entry. And security and those in charge were like, no, he is here to deliberately disrupt the event, to garner attention for himself. Like, you're not coming in. And he was escorted off the grounds and arrested. And then he tried to sue, claiming that his removal was discriminatory in nature. Like it was, you know, like he was this. Black? Yes. And they were like, no, and it didn't it didn't go through. So he loses that case as well. There's a few court cases with this guy. This is my favorite. This one that I'm about to tell you now <laughs> is my favorite, favorite, favorite thing that he did. So um same governor, Governor Frank White, that he was, you know, constantly uh, fighting with. Um, he shows up on uh, Frank White's lawn, the governor's mansion, cross, and he crucifies himself. He straps himself what? to a cross. Tina, stop. I stop swear it. to God. This is some bullshit. No. Straps himself to a cross um, <laughs> and claiming it, it, that it was an anti-racism demonstration. And he protested the governor's refusal to meet with him. But, but... He wore thermal underwear on the hottest day of the year as he's on this cross because he thought it would soak up his sweat. 
and he ends up having like it a falls. heat, oh, no. heat stroke. <laughs> I was going to say, I thought you could say his pants fell. No, oh my he God. ended up in the hospital. What in the fuck? <laughs> he ended up in the hospital. He's obviously not married because his wife would have been so, like, Bitch, No, he's married. No, he's no, married. come on. <laughs> no, he's She's married. got no say in this at all. Yeah, no say for say. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, um, wives, wives do not play like this. Oh my God. Oh, you're so, going to go crucify yourself? No, yeah. I don't think so. So he, um, ends up back like a couple days later and people like sort of take shifts what? and then the governor ends up meeting with him. But the governor's like, I didn't meet with him because of all of this. Like I was going to meet with him anyway, but please. Yeah. You're feeding into yeah. this. What are you doing? Yeah, bad so, advice, bad advice. Um, and then he tried a similar stunt with the sheriff <laughs> and he wanted to protest the treatment of blacks by the sheriff's oh office. My and God. All of his intentions are good, right? Uh, well, He's got these wonderful intentions that there are like these discriminatory, discriminatory things happening in Little Rock. But he's going about it yeah, listen, maybe the this wrong is way. Not, take a beat. Take a breath. Yes. Hold on a second. You yes. know, there's ways to do it. You can be reasonable and, and be intelligent, talk yes. in a way that is not going to, you know, you don't have to have these antics yes. to get people's attention. This was his thing. So he shows up with the, the cross at the sheriff's office and the sheriff uh, comes out with a chainsaw and he's like, all right, I'm out of here. <laughs> later. See you Wait later. a minute. What? <laughs> Yes. What he? Oh, the <laughs> sheriff was gonna cut it down. Oh my god! Yes. This is what's happening. Oh my yes. god! Yes. This is the funniest thing I've yeah. ever fucking heard. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Oh my god! Oh my he god. brought chainsaw. <laughs> this is that's how you're supposed to be though you've got to oh, yeah. deal with crazy people yes. with crazy and you know it's funny because i was reading some <laughs> stuff and that the sheriff at the end like when they asked him like oh what, what do you think about say like years later and he's like no i love i like you know like he's like i think he's a good guy at the end of the day like he i have no ill will like i know he did all this stuff for right. years against me and other people but he's a good guy at heart yeah and yeah so he didn't he really never said anything bad about him which i thought was interesting oh, so how does sort of all of this and like this, how does Clinton sort of fit into this? So just like he went after um, Governor Frank White, when Clinton was governor, he sort of did the same things. He would put these posters all over town. Sometimes they were about Clinton. Sometimes they were about, you know, um, addressing blacks, saying like you got to stand up against like the, the things that, that sort of the whites in power are doing and all of this other stuff. So. Um, he was this thorn in Clinton's side throughout his gubernatorial appointment and during the early part of that first presidential campaign. Mm. So um, some of the flyers that he would put up accused Clinton of infidelity. Oh. Now, let's say, say maybe not. He maybe wasn't that wrong. Well, <laughs> I'm just I'm putting it out there. Looking what? back 2020 vision, how, how, looking back. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Yes. So. <laughs> Um, not only did he accuse Clinton of infidelity, but he also accused him of fathering an illegitimate <gasps> child Ooh-oh. named Danny Williams, which, after a DNA analysis, has been proved false. Okay. So those allegations Ooh, I have, never even heard that were like in the Arkansas world were yeah. swirling around Clinton. And finally, Ugh. he's been cleared of, of that. But the flyers followed into Clinton's first presidential campaign. And here's a line from one of these flyers. <sighs> The hottest thing going, Bill Clinton's dick will keep him from running for president <laughs> of the United States of America. <laughs> oh, that's a flyer. Isn't that Again, crazy? And I ask is, you, where's this, the wife in this? What is she doing? Why is she allowing this to happen? And this is all over town. I mean, again, he wasn't really wrong. No, first of all, he so, wasn't wrong. He wasn't, wasn't really. Wrong. Yeah. So, um, and my I, other I, listen, I Bill Clinton, I, I'm with you, great president. But I, when I voted for him for the second time, my first election I got to vote was 18. I voted for president for Bill Clinton. Second election I voted for him again, and then the news dropped about Monica. Even though all that shit, we were defending his bullshit all the time. Then it dropped about hurt him and how he was lying. I was fucking pissed. Yes, I was pissed. I'm like, what the, fu-? you know. Uh, again, we talk about cheating affairs, yes. okay, but you're lying about this in the yes. Oval Office yes. in my fucking White House? Yes. Motherfucker, please. Yes. Just be honest. Yeah. And this guy, I can't even imagine what he was, must have been saying oh, after he all must that been shit like, came see, out. Look yeah. at all these flyers yes. from years ago. I told you. I told you his dick was going to get a job. Yes. <laughs> so the, the best part, though, is that at one point, like, the Secret Service had to call, be called in to remove flyers off oh, a telephone. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my god. So basically we paid for that. Oh my god, can you imagine? Wow. So, um 
Now, here's where things get a little weird. When Clinton was elected president, well, let me show you one of these flyers. Um, I just want to, so you can see, like, he did all these sort of these flyers by hand. And, um, like, this is another one. Clinton ain't done nothing to run for president. Free dinner, state capitol grounds. And he lists, like, all these things. Uh, you know, Clinton has been governor for almost six years, and only 1% of the American people know him. Mm. He didn't give state employees the raise that he promised. And he just, you know, calls out Clinton for what he felt like Clinton did wrong, but it was all sorts of flyers, and that's one of them that he created. They're, they look pretty cool, His the calligraphy on yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's a really good flyer. Yeah, he, he did a great job. <laughs> and then um, this is a picture of, 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 say, in the early days. Oh, I love him. Yeah. Is I that mean, a leather jacket? He's like got... Like short sleeve leather jacket? No, it's like a aloha. It's a little Hawaiian shirt Hold on, let wearing. me see that shirt one more time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I love him. Yes, he's great. Like, oh, my so God, So super dude. cool. Yeah. So um, when Clinton was elected president, Arkansas's new governor who was then elected was uh, Jim Guy Tucker. And Jim Guy Tucker left for a couple of days to attend the inauguration of Bill Clinton in Washington. Okay. So while he was gone for a couple of days, the, sa- the state Senate's president pro term, Jerry Joel, he was working as acting governor. It was two days. Okay, yeah. Two days. Yeah. In those two days, he pardoned a murderer. What? And a felon. Excuse me? And the felon happened to be, say, Macintosh's son. <gasps> what? And so people are like, what in the hell is going on? Like, why did this happen? Yeah. So I just want to tell you the son's charges, like a little brief overview. Um, he was in jail... He was sentenced to 50 years in jail because he was caught trafficking 4.5 pounds of cocaine from California to Arkansas. Oh, God. So that happened about six years prior to the pardon. So he was in jail probably not even quite six years. Right. And he's, boom, pardoned out on the streets, like, done. And uh, people people flipped out. They... they, um, And later on, Say tells the press... That in exchange for limiting his attacks on Clinton, including the story about the alleged illegitimate child, his son would be pardoned. So he actually takes Clinton to court because he says that Clinton said to me that I would get X amount of money, um, that he would pardon my son, and he didn't follow through on any of that stuff. And then the the court case kind of like disappears. And he was friends with Jerry Joel. And oh. so now they're saying, well, maybe Jerry did this as a favor for him, like out of that friendship. I just or don't see this. Other people said that Clinton maybe did have something allegedly that, hey, here's the plan. Like, I'm going to be in office. This new guy is going to come in. We're going to let this third guy sort of distance ourselves do this. But it's just very odd it's, that in a two day period, right. one of the guys that gets pardoned is, is say son. I mean, it's weird, but I don't see this this fucking shit stir with flyers. You're gonna t- unless he hit on something like that Mel Gibson conspiracy movie where he's like, one of my conspiracies hit, but I don't know which one it is. Like that right. movie, like unless he really hit something that was so damaging. But I can't imagine even giving a little ounce of credence to like this guy who just shows up. He's like a shit stir. Like how, yeah. why would you do something like that for it him? It just is. Because everybody's going to know. It's not like it's private. It's public. Everybody's yeah. going to know you pardoned him. Why would they do that? Well, but then Clinton didn't pardon him. The governor right. didn't pardon him. It's this, it's this third, other guy. And then it's going to be like, well, they're friends. So what about, do you know anything about the murderer that they, he let out? I wonder if there was any Mm-mm. connection, uh, if they had any connection with that guy, not say that, yeah. but anybody else that the yeah. guy was friends with. That I don't know. Yeah. So, um, so, but as a result, like everybody was in up in arms and the legislator ends up developing new rules to prevent this type of thing from happening again. Like if you're in for a couple of days, like you can't do this type of ruling. When the substitute teachers here, you don't pass everybody straight A's for the corner. What the fuck? It's crazy. No, that's crazy. Isn't it wild? Yes. So again, it's all alleged, but people like there's these rumors about like, why did his son with a 50 year sentence happen to get pardoned in this little window? Yeah. It's just odd. So we'll we'll never know. Right. So, but say did in that court case say that Clinton said that he would do that, but that he didn't follow through. So then I don't know if somehow he got this other guy to do. I don't know. Yeah. But ultimately 
say zany antics and penchant for drama, they've made him this legendary character. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I do like to have my little points of interest. So I wanted to, I really wanted to make sure that I highlighted that outside of his political activism and hijinks, he was a really, really generous and giving person. So say often to the detriment of his own business would provide food for the poor on holidays. Like he once prepared a free Thanksgiving feast for 500 people who Holy needed food. Cow. Yes. He also provided toys at Christmas again at his own expense to kids in low income areas. And he became known as little rocks, black Santa. Oh, and he would man. like go like secretly to people's houses and leave gifts for kids. I mean, what an yeah. incredible thing to do. That's amazing. And he was named um, Arkansas Man of the Year for his work as Black Santa once. Wow. And in that picture that I showed you, he's, he's wearing Black Santa. He's wearing a Black Santa cap. Um, he put up car crosses to mark kids who died due to gang violence. Mm. So there would be, you know, anytime a kid died, he to, to recognize. And he even had flyers that like addressed gang violence and like, what are you guys doing? So he brought attention to other things outside of like the political stuff. Yeah. And then his sweet potato pies, they are still legendary. And there's even an annual Say It Ain't Says pie baking contest. And I put a link because I found the recipe to oh, cool. say sweet potato pie. And I put that in our notes. Nice. So if you want to try to make a pie, if anyone out there likes to bake, you could try to make one of Say's famous <laughs> sweet potato pies. So that's the story of Robert Say McIntosh, activist, mischief maker, and rabble rouser. Wow. Awesome. It's a cute little story. Yes. It's so good. I love it. It's so good. Yeah. And he still um, participates in the in the judging contest. And oh, so he's, he's, still he's around. Old. He's still around. Yeah. Oh, Tina. I know. So I was like, I got to do this story because my, my husband and his family um, will, will tell these silly uh, say stories. And I, there's another picture I want to show you real quick. Is um, This is him older. And uh, he made the cover of the Arkansas Times. And it says, <laughs> Duck Sucker, say Macintosh and his personal battle to save the world. So wow. he was just always out yeah. there fighting. I, I mean, in his that. own way. I definitely admire that for sure. Yeah. That's so, cool. Good yeah. story. It's a fun, different little story. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so that's it. Yes. Good. Yes. I mean, I like these episodes. I don't have to edit too much. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like uh, I think we're running. I feel like we're running through them, and we're able to like get it done without having to edit things out that we don't want people yes. to hear. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's good. We're becoming very professional. We are. We got to turn it into do re mi. Mm -hmm. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to do that, especially in the time of a pandemic. Well, this is the time people need to listen. <laughs> they got to have something to do. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Do you have a favorite podcast that you like? Well, of course, My Favorite Murder. Oh, yeah. We're big fans of My Favorite yes, Murder. I love My Favorite Murder. And I mean, that's my numero uno. Yeah. But I do. I love listening to a slew of um, true crime well, uh, stories. Yeah, me too. So. Um, I was thinking that. Uh, I like the ones that are like, ser like I, I like ones that come out every week, but I also like ones that are just like this many episodes. Yes. So, so those are really good. Um, there's one called The Ballad of Billy Balls. Have you listened to that? Oh, no. It's really, really great. You got to listen to it. Um, it's about a, um, a person who grew up in New York, like kind of like with a single mother who was a little bit, the mother was like not really involved too much like this kid was on their own you know and like running the streets on their own or whatever but the mother was just really out of her mind because she had lost her uh boyfriend at like 20 years old they were he was shot by the police and the oh mother goodness. always insisted their entire life that the the boyfriend was it was killed by a cop and um that they, it was out to get him and all this stuff so the whole podcast is about finding out what really happened to billy balls oh. and it's really good it's at the time in new york when the it was like you know the village and so it's awesome. Oh, I'll we'll have to and check you, it it's, out. And it's, there's an end. You know what I mean? Yes. Like there's an ending to it. And yes, the person I love that, that does it, um, I think it's Io Tillett is her name, is their name, his name, the, he's transgender. And uh, it's fantastic. So you gotta listen to it. Ballad of Billy Balls. I just finished it and I loved it. Oh, I can't wait to check it out. Yes, I loved it. Yay. Yeah. So that's it. I mean, yes. back to quarantine. Yes. Please get out of my house and stop giving me the coronavirus. Okay. <laughs> 
I'll be sure. I'll be sure not to cough on the way out. And everybody take care of yourselves. <laughs> Stay sane. Uh, you know, send us messages on Instagram. Yes. Like, send us videos. We'll, maybe we'll get on Instagram and just say, check in and see how everybody's doing. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's so good to to talk to you again and see you. And and we'll yeah. see each other again soon. Yes. <laughs> Next week, we'll, we'll keep our social distance. Yes. Hopefully, until everybody, then. everybody still be healthy then. Yes. So, I think so. Yes. Wash your hands. Share a roll of toilet paper with your neighbors and, and, and have a good week. Yes. All right. I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. If you want to see any photos or take a deeper dive into our stories, please follow the episode notes on our website, themuckpodcast.fireside.fm, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Muck Podcast. To support The Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level. Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for The Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Doherty.